0: Um. All right, before I, I really dive into the sermon, I, I want to hear from you. This is a little unusual. Um. Today is part two of a, a series called Eating with Jesus, and as you give them something to eat. We're going to dive into Matthew chapter 14, Matthew 14, but I want to start with a confession and then I want to hear from you. This is my confession this week. Often I see myself so clearly. That I lose sight of God, I see myself so clearly that I lose sight of God. Have you ever just gotten so focused on your inadequacies that you forget His sufficiency? Um, this this past week, I was prepping my yard for a cornfield, in a small cornfield, but. I had to till her out, and I was just, like, tilling up some grass because I want more corn there. We live in the city. And, so. yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I had this heart. I grew up in the country, and Kelsey says, I still act like I live in the country. <laughs> and I don't. I live on a busy street, and everybody can see it. Uh, it's a little embarrassing. But I had this, this feeling, it was like, I sometimes wish I had just been a farmer. Because farming feels more attainable than the work that I'm doing. It's, it's like Jesus, he takes fishermen and he says, I'm gonna make you fishers of people. And it's like, no thanks. Leave me to the fishing. I, I know how to do that. I, I, that's my wheelhouse. I can, I can manage this. It feels a little more within my control. I, I feel like that very often in my life and with, with ministry. But I wanna hear from you, where do you feel insufficiency? So we just shared around the table Uh, You already have something close at hand. Where are you feeling this? I want to hear a variety. Don't worry, it's only being recorded. (laughs) Anybody might share it. Who is that? You feel the insufficiency of time. There's just not enough time. Anybody else feel that? Too much to do. Parenting. 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 Evie says parenting. <laughs> so there's a parenting thank mishap right here, right now. <laughs> what else? I feel like just not knowing how to serve people. Like, just not even knowing how. Like, what What do you need? What do I need? Casey? Teaching and leading. Teaching and leading? Yes. Ending racism. Casey, yeah. Yeah. thank you. Uh, And Candy said, ending racism. That's pretty big, right? Uh, So her husband, Breon, her husband Breon has been, for for the 47 days of the official season of Lent, he's been leading our direction team through a resource called An American Lent. And what An American Lent, its goal is to prompt the fruit of repentance for dealing with racial sin. And what An American Lent does is it starts in the slave trade, and then moves through Reconstruction, Jim Crow, up to now, and shows how the the sale and and then the governance from from things like redlining and education and housing to uh, mass incarceration is just the complexity of this problem. Um, it has felt overwhelming to me. I have felt despair. And hopelessness, the, the difficulty, the complexity, the inadequacy, this is just one problem, right? We could put any problem in this, but it feels like one of those problems that's too big. It's systemic. I'm just a person, so I can't change the system. But even if I did have influence in a system, which I, I do in some systems, it's complex, it's interconnected systems, and I can't even <laughs> control this one thing. And so I just feel so small. I feel this weighty burden. But, you know, then Easter comes and I realize that I am feeling despair and a loss of hope. But Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. There's something that's not computing in this equation. And so what ends up happening is that when we feel this difficulty, complexity, insufficiency, when we feel the inadequacy, the limitations, the the few resources, when we get so consumed with ourselves, we lose sight of what God is able to do, and sometimes our inabilities block our perception of God's abilities. Our, our weaknesses block our perceptions of his power. I can easily use what I don't have as an excuse for why I don't give what I do have. But I, I bet that's just me, right? Uh, no, it's, it's not. All of us are feeling some measure of insufficiency. So I'm gonna pause and I just wanna pray and invite you to explore what those are and then we'll dive into a text to see a word from the Lord and what he might have to say about it. O Lord God, who is all sufficient, from you are all things. You are the creator and to you are all things. You are the destiny of creation. You are glorious and awesome and powerful and we come to you as small people we are dust. We come to you as sinful people who have failed you and broken your law. Lord, would you illuminate in our hearts an area where we feel insecurity, where we feel inadequacy and insufficiency, an area where our vision of ourself is blocking a vision to receive from you or even a vision of you, and Lord, would you speak from your word today, a word of your power, a word of your presence, and a word of hope. Lord, work among us to the glory of your name. Amen. We're going to dive into Matthew 14, 1 through 21. We're going to see one question. Who is this man? Two dinners, and we're going to look at it from three perspectives. Um, Have you ever heard of imposter syndrome? Yes, yes you have. Have you ever felt imposter syndrome? Yeah, almost all of us. And you may have felt (laughs) it pretty often. Imposter syndrome is this feeling that you don't belong where you're at. It's this feeling like you're about to get exposed. Like if they knew what you knew about you, then you wouldn't be here. And they're they're just on the verge of discovering you're an imposter. Now this isn't like a real syndrome that's, you know, (laughs) It's not something happening medically within you. It's just this perception of our insufficiencies and insecurities. And there's a lot of forms of imposter syndrome. Uh, You probably feel it when you take home baby and you put him in the car seat after you were at the hospital. Do you remember if you're a parent the first time you put the baby in the car seat and you're like, how is this my job? You know, I have no training for this. I went to school for years and years and years just to do my work. I didn't go to, I have no training, and I have to keep this person alive. I felt like an imposter, and the truth truth be told, I, I very much was an imposter at that point. I had no idea what I was doing. A lot of people who are in academia feel this, because you've worked so long, you admire the people ahead of you, kind of the experts, and you've been reading their works, and then you graduate, and you get the title, and you start the job, and then it's like, well, I'm not one of them, I'm still reading them. I don't belong here. If you're in a helping profession, you can very much feel this. Sometimes the, the urgency of a need, if you're in like the fire department responding or paramedic responding to a desperate need, somebody needs something far more than I can give. I don't know what to do here. I hope they don't ask me what to do because I have no idea. There's this in a, a ton of different areas where we feel like imposters. Where our inadequacies are revealed, though, it tends to do this. God's sufficiency is veiled. Imposter syndrome is actually a double-edged sword, it seems to me. Um, what, it, what it does is it focuses on me and my weaknesses, but then it gives the temptation that the way out of imposter syndrome is to focus on me and my strengths. And I think there's actually a different pathway forward that's not focused on you at all. Is that when your inadequacies are revealed, don't try to look for your strings, but try to look for God's string. That's what Matthew 14 is, I think, going to help us with here. Three perspectives, two dinners, and one question. The one question starts here with Herod. And he's asking, who is this man? Chapter 14, The really the first half of this section is going to set the stage for where we're, we're going to slow down and focus. It says, at that time, Herod... The tetrarch. Tetrarch's a weird word. It just means he was one of four rulers. He's one of four. He's Herod the Great's son. Herod the Great kind of split his empire between his four sons. This is Herod, who's over Galilee. So Herod the tetrarch, the ruler of Galilee, he heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist, who has risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. He's asking the question, who is Jesus? And his answer is John the Baptist. We'll come back to who is this man several times in this text. John the Baptist is kind of a weird place to assume that he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. What's so special about John? You remember John. John is the one sent to prepare the way of the Lord. John's job is to make He's going to level the mountains. He's going to raise the valleys. He's going to make straight the highway for our God to come back to his people. And he does it in his ministry. He baptizes Jesus. He anoints him. He says, this is the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. But the last time we see John in the Gospel of Matthew, he's actually in prison. He's saying, are are you actually the one? He sends his messengers to Jesus. Last time we find John, he's in prison. Here we discover more about that scene. Because Herod had arrested John... And he had bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Now, if you are one of these people who loves like British tabloids where you're following the, the royal thing, or American tabloids where you're finding celebrity stuff, or even some of those Netflix shows that are all about like gossip and people getting together and intrigue, or uh, maybe like a Game of Thrones type scene, this is your deal right here. Can I just tell a quick story of what Herod is doing? See, Herod is married. Let me make sure I get some of these details right. Herod is uh, at one point married to uh, the princess of Nabatea. The princess of Nabatea. It's a political marriage. It's for an alliance with the king of Nabatea. The king, since his daughter, Herod, marries him, they have peace between their peoples. But then Herod... He falls in love with his brother Philip's wife. Her name's Herodias. They're all big fans of King Herod the Great. It's really weird how big fans they are. Everyone wants to be called Herod, including all four brothers and the brother's wife. So he falls in love with his brother's wife, and the brother's wife says, if you want to marry me, you gotta divorce her. And so he's like, okay, I'll divorce the princess of Nabatea, and you have to divorce your brother Philip. Okay, let's do it. So then they arrange their divorces, then they end up marrying one another, But when he divorces the princess of Nabatea, her dad gets mad. And so he goes to war against Herod the Tetrarch. And so you get war, and you get this kind of sexual intrigue. All of this is happening here. So he ends up remarrying her. But John the Baptist is this prophet of God, and he's saying none of this is right. Um, I find it a little ironic when American Christians don't want preachers to comment on the, the marriage lives of our leaders. John the Baptist was a prophet. And he certainly did. And some things need to be called out as ungodly and unlawful. And if it's your political leader or your opponent's political leader, it still applies either way, it seems to me. So John was calling in a prophetic voice against Herod. And Herod gets mad, so he throws him in prison. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. I was reading Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman is magnificent scholar in the middle of the 20th century. His grandmother was an enslaved woman. And he's writing about Herod. And he says, there's a couple of ways that you can find non-resistance when you're living under the thumb of a powerful empire. One of the ways is like assimilation. You just become like. It's imitation. If you just become like your oppressors, then you'll have nothing to worry about. This is King Herod's strategy. Do you see it all happening here? Politics, war, sex, all of it is happening. He thinks this is the way. If I'm just like Rome, I don't have anything to worry about. Meanwhile, there's all of these people who are living under the bondage of Roman oppression, and he's afraid of them. So on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Now, it doesn't give a lot of details, and it's certainly not an illustrated Bible, but can you imagine this scene? She's dancing in a way at a party that pleases him. So you add war and politics to sexual intrigue. Now you have this scene. I'm not going to go into any more detail. And he promised with an oath that he would give her whatever she asked. And so prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And the king was distressed. Now, this is interesting that it uses the word king because Herod never went by the title king. That's his daddy's title. Herod the Great was the king of everybody. He's the tetrarch. So king, I think, is a biblical, it's this cute. Pay attention here. Pay attention here. Because we're about to see not only one king hosting a dinner, but we'll see another king hosting a very kind of dinner. The king was distressed because of his oath and his dinner guests, and he ordered that her request be granted and that John had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. I was talking with Candy some this week about it. she made this connection. She says, oh, the contrast between a head brought to a girl who brings it to her mother versus do you remember when the women came and they helped take the body of Jesus down from the cross? These are two very different kingdoms. It's the kingdom of power, politics, of sex, of violence. And then it's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of the disinherited. It's the It's the people who are overlooked and the small, the insufficient. John's disciples came and they took his body and buried it, And they went and they told Jesus. So the question's here. Who is this Jesus? And I want to look at it from three perspectives. We're going to go straight into Jesus. They, They come and they tell Jesus. Now if you're Jesus, how are you thinking about what just happened? John the Baptist wasn't only like a fellow prophet A man of God John was his cousin You remember Mary and Elizabeth were, were cousins They were related This is his, his, his God His family his, He feels the same He's the one anointed by him He feels a connection But he also knows that if Herod will kill him What will he do to me? They go tell Jesus Look what Jesus does the first perspective I want to look at is from the lens of Jesus. And it says, Jesus heard what had happened, and he withdrew. He withdrew. He got away. He, you could use the word retreated. This word withdrew in the Gospel of Matthew seems to be used when there's a threat. So whenever Jesus' family is about to be smashed by Herod's daddy, Herod the Great, and he's killing all the babies in Bethlehem, do you know what he does? He withdraws. His family withdrew to Egypt. Another time, whenever people are pressing in, they're going to kill him. Jesus withdraws. This seems to be language for violent threat that's coming your way. Here it is hunting right now. Jesus is under risk. It's not just risk. He he wanted to go privately to a solitary place. Because his friend just died. It's not just risk. It's grief. Can you imagine the weight on his heart? He's on the run. He, he knows what's coming. They're, they're after him now. I just want to be alone. Have you ever lost somebody? The last, thing, the last thing most of us want when we're experiencing grief is to have to host and be part of a large crowd. We just want to close the door and lay down. Jesus is like that. And so hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns And when Jesus landed, he gets in the boat and then he lands, he's he's trying to get alone and he sees a large crowd. Now, what would you do if you were here? I can speak for myself. I know, I'm pretty confident that I would experience frustration, exasperation, irritation. But can I just point out that Jesus is a better man than me? Jesus didn't like us. From from the perspective of Jesus, there is surprising compassion. Look at it; he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Compassion in Greek is this really weird word. It's about like the movement of your bowels. We would call it he was moved. There's this thing about moved though. That. You know, part of our American lit reflection was this this word compassion. This really stuck with me. What what it did was contrast sentiment versus compassion. Sentiment versus compassion. Just bear with me with a quote from Eugene Peterson. He says, "Being against sin and evil is not social justice, and feeling sorry for the victims of injustice is not a prophetic act." We live in a culture that has replaced compassion with sentiment. Sentiment is mere feeling, disconnected from relationships. Sentiment is spilled compassion. It looks like concern. It could develop into compassion, but it seldom does. Sentiment is the tears that flow while watching a sad movie, tears that never get connected with visiting your dying friend. We feel sorry for people, we mourn the pain and suffering in the world, but having felt the internal motions of pity, wept a few requisite tears of sorrow, and sent off $10 to a charitable appeal, we've exhausted our capacity for care. But this word compassion means that you're moved to do something. One commentator says this, that r- compassion in the Gospels regularly issues in action to meet the need which evokes it. Compassion isn't sentiment. Compassion moves into a solution and resolution. Peterson goes on. He says, admiration doesn't usually translate into participation. We need something besides admiration. We need something besides sentiment. We need to move. Look at Jesus' what he does. He's trying to get away. He's on the run. He needs to get away from people for his own safety. He needs to get away from people for his own sanity. And instead, he comes off the boat he spends the day healing crowds of people from the perspective of Jesus there's surprising compassion. Let's look at another perspective here from the perspective of the crowds. Put yourself in the crowd's shoes. If Jesus is, has compassion, the crowds have desperation. This is such a weird scene. They know they desperately need Jesus. They're thinking who is this man? He's the, the only one we can we can find. He's, he's the only one who has the hope that we have. He's the only one that can satisfy us. You can't get away, we will chase you down. We will run after you. Now, get who's running here. These are people, very much, in need of healing. So imagine like a hospital ward of people that runs out of the doors and runs around the lake on foot. It's like, how many of these people got injured on the way to Jesus' landing spot and that was why they needed healing? I don't know. They're like, they're hungry. They don't have any plans. They're just like, we'll figure it out later. All we need is this guy. Do you see the desperation of the crowds? They, they followed him on foot from the towns. There's just people pouring out because they know that he's the only one who can give them what they really need. It's, it's almost comical, to picture the scene. And by the way, it's not just a small group of people. It describes this as 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. Just thousands of people pouring out. It's like if you went to a FedEx Forum today for a ball game that may be happening in a couple hours, you're going to see thousands of people. But instead of going to a ball game, they're just running around the Mississippi River looking for Jesus. It's just crazy to imagine. Why? Desperation. Desperation. Compassion and desperation. That's the combination that we see here. But there's one other group that I want to introduce you to. It's the disciples. Third perspective. As evening approached, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, this is a remote place. Now, this word remote place is accurate. It it means it's kind of far away from things. But it's actually the word for desert or wilderness, wilderness. So Bible readers should have this cue go off. This isn't just a remote place. This is a wilderness scene. Has anything ever happened in a wilderness? Stay tuned. <laughs> and it's already getting late. So he, they, tell, they tell Jesus, which is always a bold move, send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Now from the disciples' perspective, I think they're actually doing pretty well. They have noticed some things for a change. They seem to care about people, at least in part, for a change. They know they're gonna get hungry, we don't have what we need. Jesus, you need to do something about this. If it's compassion and desperation here, it's almost like limitation and direction. Let's just get things under control here. Let's control what we can control. Send them home, we don't have what they need. Let's, Let's move on with the scene. So Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Guys, this line has stuck with me all week long. I just don't know what to do with this line. There's this old hymn I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, He kindly will help me. If he ever loves and cares for His own. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, Jesus can help me, Jesus alone. And then you go and you tell Jesus, these people need some food. And he says, good idea, you do it. (laughs) It's like, Jesus, that's not what I was asking for. What do you mean you give them something to eat? I can't do it, Jesus. Do you see the limitation of the disciples? Man, this has stuck with me. I don't really know what to do with this. Now, it it is true. If they had been really good Bible students, they probably should have known that this guy, who just healed thousands of people, is probably capable of healing this too. (laughs) If God's people had ever been in a wilderness where God found a way to give them the bread that they needed, maybe then they would know that this guy could give them the bread that they needed too, but they didn't seem to know that. If they had ever read of the prophets who had done feeding miracles... Like the prophet Elisha. Elisha tells his disciples, you give them something to eat in 2 Kings chapter 4. <laughs> and the disciples of Elisha say, what? We only have this little bit of bread. We can't do anything with this. And he says, that's enough. You give them something to eat and they'll be leftovers." So if they had read their Bibles, if they knew the stories of what God was capable of in the wilderness, then perhaps they should have known But these disciples are so focused on their limitations that they miss the one in front of them. So we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish they answered, Love this word only. Because only says it's not enough. It's insufficient. It's inadequate. I only have this. I only have what isn't enough. And so Jesus tells them, bring them here to me, the five loaves, two fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. We'll come back to this word, grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. I love these verbs, these verbs where he takes, gives thanks, breaks, and gives Every one of the Gospels tells this story. This is actually the only miracle of Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels. In all four Gospels, use these four verbs in this order. There's actually a feeding of the 4,000 that we'll look at next week. Two of the Gospels tell the story of the feeding of the 4,000. Do you know what verbs they use? Same ones. Somehow, these verbs are really important. I'll let you hold on to that. We'll come back to it. So he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. It's so fascinating that in their limitation, Jesus gives them empowerment. Jesus gives them calling, he gives them responsibility. Compassion, and desperation, need, limited people who trust in limitless God. This is a wild story, this is how it ends. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up the 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now, some say there may be symbolic significance to 12, perhaps. Perhaps this is 12, like the number of apostles, the, like the tribes of Israel. I tend to think it's probably every one of the disciples needed a reminder <laughs> that there was leftovers. Everyone comes back and is like, oh, I should have known. <laughs> so they were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Let's go back to this question. It's the one question everybody's asking. Who is this guy? Who is this man? Herod, the tetrarch, he thinks is John the Baptist. Obviously, he's a little traumatized by what he did to John. He had his head cut off and he was put on a plate in front of him. So anytime anybody does anything special, he thinks, it's got to be that, it's got to be that. Mm-hmm. And in a way, he's he's sort of right. It is connected to John. But you know John's role? John's role was to point forward to the one who was to come. John was the one who prepared for the coming of the Lord. John in some ways they called him like the Elijah figure. John was like the Elijah. Do you remember who came after Elijah? Elijah, he bestowed his mantle. He anointed his right hand man, Elisha, to kind of take on the role. Elijah's job is to anoint the one who's coming after him. John's job is to anoint the one's coming after him. And Jesus is showing that he is the one to come after Elijah. He's the true and better Elisha. In 2 Kings 4, remember, Elisha is the first one who says, you give them something, to eat," and they say, we only have 20 loaves, there's 100 people. He says, just do it, there'll be leftovers. Jesus doesn't do 20 loaves for 100 people. He does five loaves for 5,000 people, plus women and children. He's the true and better of Elisha. He's the one who's coming after the prophet. He is the one that we've been waiting on. Is he the new Moses? Well, yes, he's that too. He's the true and better Moses. You remember Moses was in the wilderness with the people. People are hungry. They have nothing to eat. They just ran into the wilderness out of of Egypt. And Moses says, this is what the Lord says, I will rain bread from heaven down for you. I will rain bread from heaven. Moses is the one who who gets bread for his people in the wilderness. And and John, whenever John, he's writing about this in John chapter 6, he says, all the people say, this is the prophet, the one who's like Moses. This is him. We've been waiting on him. But he's far better than Moses. Because Moses wasn't the one who actually provided the bread. It was Yahweh. It was God Himself providing the bread. And here we see God Himself come into the scene, not just of new Moses. But we also see the scene of the king. Now, the story started, you remember, with Herod called the king. And Herod's hosting a dinner. And so there's one king in his dinner, the kingdom of this world, contrasted with the true king and his dinner. Now it seems like an unusual dinner, except that when they tell the story, they're using technical phrases for dinner parties. I was trying to think of some technical phrases for dinner parties. If you ever mentioned a place setting, you would know exactly what I was talking about. A place setting belongs at a table. That's kind of how they're using the story. They, they say, he invited them to sit on the grass. But the word isn't sit. He, re, he invited them to recline as at a banquet on the grass. It's this technical phrase that shows this is a banquet scene with Jesus as the host. It's an unusual banquet to be sure, but that's what's happening in this scene. Why on the grass? Well, the, the imagination and expectation of the people was that in the springtime, the great Messiah would come and he would provide bread for his people. And grass, commentators say, was only growing in this area during the springtime. Summer would come and it would scorch the earth and the grass wouldn't be there anymore. And so here it is, he's showing the people, I am your king who's come to you and I'm providing the meal that you've been waiting for. He's hosting the Messiah's banquet. The Messiah's banquet. All of those verbs are cue that this is something special that's happening here. And the people know it. Now you and I because of cultural distance and time, we kind of lose some of these connections to the Messiah, to the prophet and to these hope for expectations, but they do not. In John chapter 6, after he feeds the 5,000, it says that the people recognized that he was the prophet who was coming and they wanted to make him king by force. They knew what was happening. This is the true and better king that we've been waiting for. Jesus is the true and better prophet, he's the true and better Messiah, he's the true and better king. All of these expectations were built for this man, Jesus, and he exceeds them all. And there is disciples so focused on themselves that they miss what he's capable of. So, our insufficiencies, bring him here. Whatever, whatever the Lord is kind of working on today, with time or family or parenting or whatever it may be. Maybe it's a, a ministry, maybe it's a new opportunity, maybe it's a stage of life, a relationship or a marriage or a child, uh, some burden where you're feeling overwhelmed. I think what we need is a theology of leftovers. This, What I basically mean is we need a reminder that God is more than enough. That God can well supply the need for the thing that feels impossible that's right in front of us. Give Jesus what you have, not what you don't. I'm constantly struck by this. Jesus never asked his disciples to give them anything they don't have. But very often in scripture, the Lord will invite people to give them exactly what they have. Moses, give me your staff. We'll work with that. The staff becomes a snake. The staff becomes the thing that parts the seas. Elijah, just give me, give me the oil that's in the jar. We'll work with that. Give me the loaves. Give me the fishes, and we'll work with that. Give me what you have, not what you don't. And if you give Jesus what you have, what do we find? That Jesus plus anything equals enough. So where is Jesus inviting you to give them something to eat? I don't want you to answer out loud, but I do want you to answer now you, He says, I don't know. That's good. Where's Jesus inviting you to give them something? You know what I mean by this? Where he's like, yes, I, I, I see that burden. I see that need. There's clear desperation. You don't have what it takes. But I still want you to participate. Are you feeling a burden? You should know that I'm answering all these questions too. I, I am very much seeking the Lord for some of the burdens that I feel, because I realized that I was boxing out resurrection power from the equation, and I was feeling something personally that I was saying, I can never do anything about that, and I think the Lord is inviting me to say, here's what I have, what do you want to do with this? What is your version of that? What can you give them? Where's Jesus inviting you to, you give them something to eat." I want to share a couple of practices, but I want that to be a seed that stays with you. I I want that to grow into something, and it may take a little time. It may take a year, sometimes it does. But the practices can be really approachable, and they're managed now. They they can be done now. They're very simple. You could do them this week. You could do them today. I would love for you to do them this week. The first one is to share your table. We've talk a lot about tables, we talk about eating with Jesus this whole series about eating with Jesus. We've looked at how Jesus is constantly eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's eating with Pharisees and Sadducees. He's eating with his betrayer and his denier. Jesus shares a meal with people and his ministry seems to happen. His, the mission of God moves to the tables. And I talk about it in theory, but ultimately, you and I need to open our tables and share them with people. A theology of leftover says, what excuse do we have for eating with people in the name of Jesus? I, I love hearing stories about how you guys are sharing tables. And when I hear it happening informally, obviously we share a table here. Obviously, we, we're in groups that share tables every, every week. But when we're doing it informally, I think this is the stuff that love is made of. To share at your table. There's this old kind of church father named Cyril of Alexandria in, in Egypt. He says this on this text. He says there were gathered 12 baskets of fragments. So what do we infer from this? A plain assurance, he says, 2,000 years ago almost, that hospitality receives such a rich recompense from God, so let nothing, therefore, prevent willing people from receiving strangers. Let no one say, I do not possess suitable means, What I can do is altogether trifling and insufficient for many. Receive strangers, my beloved. Overcome that reluctance which wins no reward. The Savior will multiply the little you have many times beyond expectation. Although you give but little, you will receive much. For he that sows blessings shall also reap blessings. He says, share your table. Open it up to strangers. Have them over. If it feels awkward, Embrace it. That's all part of it. If you feel insufficient and inadequate, your home isn't nice enough or clean enough or the food isn't good enough. or All of these not enough. He says, just imagine the theology of leftovers. He says, Jesus is capable of doing something really special through your small offering. Give him what you have at the table. That's a pretty tangible practice that we can go and do. I love that from, from Cyril. A theology of leftovers that says that He's not looking for sufficient disciples. He's looking for surrendered disciples. And he's just wanting people to give him what they have. Second practice, say grace. Now, I I feel a little silly on this one, but I actually think it could be really important. What What I mean is when you come to a table and you're sharing it with people, or when you come to a meal, I just mean pray, say grace. Doesn't this sound a little small? It sounds a little silly, maybe, but one of our core habits, we have the transforming graces, the the G in graces, do you remember? Give thanks, give thanks. There's three times a day, there's this opportunity to just pause, but this prayer isn't just like, Lord, bless this, Um, Michael was over at our house the other day, and he prayed that little Caesars be made, nourishment for our bodies. (laughs) I was like, I don't, I don't know that that's happening right now. Uh, I certainly got some energy out of it. But it's, it's, it's really about blessing, not the food. It's about blessing God. Every time Jesus is at a table, he's giving things. And you know, if Jesus does it, I think we should too. It's really simple. though, But it, ha- it can have a profound daily reminder. A profound daily reminder that God gives me my daily bread. That God is actually the one who's sustaining me in this moment. That though I'm just eating this meal now, I will eat with Jesus in eternity. You see, it, it doesn't have to be small. It can be a daily reminder of something profound. It's an invitation to our families, to our friends. It recenters and says, this is a gift from God. I did not earn this. I did not grow this. So blessed be God, our Lord who gives bread for the ground. Um, in our family, some of you know this, sometimes we have very specific prayers where we thank God for the animals that had to die so that we could eat the meat that we're eating. We thank God for like the ingredients that he had to grow. I did not give the sun. I did not give the rain. I did not give the farmers and the harvest and the grocery stores and all of that is received when we say grace. It's a simple thing. Can you do it? Of course. Share your table say grace. And then, Let's, let's close with this scene. I told you to hold on to these four verbs. These four verbs show in all of the, the miraculous feedings. But they also show up in another place. They show up at the Last Supper. And I think all of these meals of Jesus are foreshadowing something that happens at the Last Supper. Remember that upper room scene that we looked at last week where he takes the bread and he takes the cup. But when he takes the bread, it says that he takes it he blesses He gives thanks. He breaks it, and then he gives it back to them. Somehow, Jesus is connecting the daily act of eating with this once, once and for all moment of his sacrificial death. He's saying that this meal reminds us of this meal, and this meal reminds us of the one that is to come in the future. All of these are signs; they're not just miracles. I don't think the reading of the feeding of the 5,000, I don't think we should walk away thinking, we can feed any large group of people if only somebody brings a few crackers and a few fish. That's not the takeaway here. There's no evidence that the disciples ever fed crowds of 5,000 people after this. Now, Jesus did, he fed the 4,000. But this doesn't become a common practice. This is pointing to a singular event where Jesus gave everything that was needed. And he's saying, that thing I gave there empowers all of the rest. Do You see what I'm trying to say? This thing that this is pointing to is the cross. It's the body and the blood of Jesus. And the body and the blood of Jesus empowers our tables. And it empowers the things that we hold up to him and say, this is all I have, is it enough? And he says, Jesus plus anything equals enough. Give him something to eat. He says, the thing that I want you to give him is my body and my blood. Give him the gospel. Give him the, the good news of Jesus. Taking, thanking, breaking, giving, to, uh, Chester says. The same words in the same order. The gospel offers making a connection. Jesus is the Messiah who provides God's people and hosts God's great banquet. Ultimately, he provides by dying and he welcomes us because he was abandoned. He says, I've heard amazing stories of God's provision. Of food appearing where there was no food. But we shouldn't expect these things as the norm. These are not the fulfillment of God's promise of a messianic banquet. We should look to the cross. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. May we not say my own strength. I can do it on my own. My own technique, my own power, my own sufficiency. Because he's not looking for self-sufficiency. He's, people, he's looking for people who are surrendered to his power. Would you stand? I want to bless you with a quick prayer from Ephesians 3. Speaking of our insufficiencies and our desires. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. amen. God bless you.